following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number six of our discussion of Inferno. We are ready to jump, <laughs> jump back into hell. So tonight, tonight's discussion is on anger management. Um, and uh, I would just, I want to draw your attention. Uh, I want to draw your attention to, um, uh, to the theme of anger throughout what we're going to be talking about tonight, because uh, it's, uh, it become this is one of the places where I find the relationship between Dante as character, right? The Dante Pilgrim and uh, the sins of the people that he surrounded to be most complicated. Um, I, there are very few places where it, things get more tangled up uh, than they seem to me to get in this uh, section. And I will also uh, begin with the exhilarating confession that I think I understand this particular section of Inferno possibly less than any other part of Inferno. So I'm I'm not full of answers uh, about this stuff. Uh, in particular, I'm thinking uh, of Cantos 8 and 9, uh, the whole um, Gates of Dees um, uh, section. I, I don't... Uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so... Um, <laughs> So, so there we are. Uh, just Now that that's on the table, we can jump back into the text. Now you'll remember <clears throat> that we ended uh, by talking about uh, uh, avarice, right? You know, he's uh, descended into the into the circle of the avaricious. Um, but it's not really, I mean, though avarice is mentioned, he doesn't, it's not called the circle of the avaricious. The emphasis was on the two conflicting sins of prodigality and miserliness. Um, and, uh, okay, so that's, um, we, pip, we pick back, and then, of course, he was identifying that a lot of the, I, th now, the thing is, is it just me, or is it not clear which side he identifies? He says, though, like, aren't most of those people over there tonsured? Uh, you know, aren't, aren't most of those, you know, church officials? Um, and Virgil's like, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, big time. Um, I, am I misremembering? Did he not identify exactly which side? Like, are they prodigal or, all, or are they misers? I mean, and both are bad, obviously. I mean, like, you you know, both get you into the circle, uh, of course. So it's not like one is a particularly more deadly insult than other. Um, I'm just kind of wondering, I like, as I was doing a little recap there, I'm like, come to think of it. I remember he identified one side, but I can't, I can't, uh, I can't place whether he did. Cause I don't think he did identify which side exactly. Are they misers or are they prodigal? Um, if he didn't, that's really interesting. If I just forgot, that's less interesting. <laughs> but anyway, um, we, uh, um, yeah, he he said the ripest growths of greed, Carolyn. Right, exactly. So, like, which one is ripest? I prodigality. I'm guessing. I mean, as um, uh, Carolyn, I would think that uh, 
prodigality would be uh, sort of metaphorically compared to like overripeness and over like an overgrown garden, right? Whereas miserliness uh, uh, would be like a, you know, a, a barren garden uh, kind of thing. Um, so ripest suggests to me probably the prodigal side. Um, but I mean, that's, uh, that's a little, uh, it's a little flimsy. Um, it's a little unclear. Um, yeah, Stephen says maybe he left it vague so clergy felt drawn either way would feel warned. Yeah, I mean, which is why it kind of makes it odd to me that he, you know, by suggesting they're really heavily concentrated on one side, he seems to be suggesting, like, there is a distinctive pattern, right? There is a distinctive tendency within church officials in one direction or the other. And you'd think, like, he'd point that out, you know, or, or call it out a little bit more. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, the tonsured ones who circle on our left. Um, okay, yeah, it, it's um, it's not clear. It's not clear. So I'm looking. Jennifer was uh, quoting the lines for me very thoughtfully, and uh, yeah, I hadn't utterly forgotten, or at least I had not quite yet forgotten uh, to share the slides, uh, Jameson. But thanks for the reminder. Um, Anyway, yeah, um, yeah. Sorry. So I'm 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 rereading the lines that Jennifer was posting here. Master, show me now what shades are these, and tell me if they were all clerics, those tonsured ones who circle on our left. Uh, and he to me, all those to left and right were so squint-eyed of mind in the first life, no spending they did was done with measure, which is both of them, um, e equally without measure. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, well, Stephen, that's the passage we're just getting to. So let's go ahead and uh, uh, and get. I think that's the one, right? Yeah, I think so. Yes, it is. Okay. So this is the immediately following passage from the one I was just reading out again, um, and uh, so he's. Um, he, I think this is the answer to that question that I just reread, and he to me that is Virgil, obviously. That thought of yours is empty. The undiscerning life that made them filthy now renders them unrecognizable. For all eternity they'll come to blows. These here will rise up from their sepulchres with fists clenched tight. These with their hair cropped close. So he's pointing to the, the misers with their fists clenched tight and the prodigal with their hair cropped close. Tonchers? Is that the tonsures? It's the prodigal. It's, 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 that's my theory still. Ill-giving and ill-keeping have robbed both of the fair world and set them to this fracas. What that is like, my words need not embellish. Now you can see, my son, how brief's the sport of all those goods that are in fortune's care, for which the tribe of men contend and brawl, for all the gold that is or ever was beneath the moon could never offer rest to even one of these exhausted spirits. Okay. So, Virgil's emphasis here, I believe, is, I think that this would seem to explain why we're not really told exactly, um, because perhaps this might serve to single out one over the other, right? Um one shouldn't be biased in the question of prodigality or miserliness, right? The point is that neither one of them show any measure in their relationship with wealth, right? With money. Um, a disordered 
relationship with money. That's the problem. It doesn't matter what species of disorder it is, right? Um, ill-giving and ill-keeping have robbed both of the fair world. So having clung to the world, having misused the world, they lose it, right? They've lost the fair world. And in the end, right, in eternity here, they have this, this conflict, this fracas. Um, now, he draws from this a very general conclusion, right? You can see, my son, how brief's the sport of all those goods that are in fortune's care, for which the tribe of men contend and brawl. For all the gold that is or ever was beneath the moon could never offer rest to even one of these exhausted spirits. And Stephen, yes, if that sounds to you like he, uh, Virgil, is uh, like directly channeling Lady Philosophy from Boethius here. Yes, absolutely. Um, that last sentence, those last six lines, uh, are like Lady Philosophy could have said exactly that word for word. It's even the tone sounds like Lady Philosophy. Now you can see, my son, how brief's the sport of all those goods that are in fortune's care. Um, that's not only exactly the kind of thing that Lady Philosophy talks about, especially in Book Two of the Consolation of Philosophy, but it's, again, almost exactly the tone as well. Um, fortune, of course, for those of you who didn't read the Consolation of Philosophy with us, um, uh, and I recommend the short, one of the shortest Mythgard classes because uh, it's a short book. Um, but um, anyway, uh, the uh, fortune, Fortuna, the goddess figure Fortuna. And I say goddess figure because she's rarely understood. She was understood by the Romans. She was a, sort of appeased by, she was treated by the Romans as like a, an, a goddess, an actual goddess. Uh, the Romans were fond of, they, they sort of revered the gods that they had sort of imported from Greece, but they were very fond of like abstractly allegorical gods like victory and fortune. Um, uh, they uh, they did a lot of worship of gods of that kind, and um, uh, anyway, so the um, the but like, apart from it, maybe not even accepting the Romans, but in general, like in the in the medieval tradition, it's not that anyone is actually generally claiming that Fortuna, you know, fortune is actually a deity, like a an actual personified deity. She's a, a concept, a figure. It's a personification of an idea, right? And it's the idea of the good things of the world, right? And those of the, uh, the, the, the image, um, there are two images about uh, Lady Fortune uh, from Boethius, uh, Boethius' discussion of fortune, um, which were extremely um, influential throughout the Middle Ages. One, the, the, the second most important and influential image of the lady of, the, of, of, of Dame Fortuna um, is um, um, her standing next to the earth and stirring it up, right? That she just, her job is just to circulate stuff, right? She doesn't play favorites. Um, she just makes sure that things go here and there. And sometimes you get a windfall and sometimes you get hosed, right? And that's Lady Fortune stirring things up, right? And that's her job. And if you get upset about the fact that like something that you had, that, that you lost everything you had, if, you know, like 
something like you get robbed or the stock market crashes or something like that and you've lost everything, don't you go complaining to Fortune. She's just doing her job. This is her job, right? That's what she says. And of course, the most famous image uh, from Boethius about Lady Fortune is the Wheel of Fortune. Um, uh, the Wheel of Fortune, which is not a horizontal wheel like in the game show, named after this very concept, um, but rather it's a vertical wheel. It's like a Ferris wheel, um, with pe- except it's a Ferris wheel without safety precautions <laughs> distinctly because you ride on the Wheel of Fortune as she turns her wheel. She's blinded and she's turning her wheel. She's the one cranking the wheel and the wheel carries some people up while at the same time on the other side of the wheel, people are being taken down and they always fall off and get smashed on the ground uh, on the other side. And that's good. This is what fortune does. So, but again, all of these things were not only sort of allegorations, allegorizations of abstractions, they were understood to be extra, uh, abstractions. Like people weren't like actually, as they say, imagining that Fortuna was a person in that way. Um, but he, so he immediately is talking about fortune, right? And this just shows, so this whole, the moral that he's kind of drawing here from the circle of the uh, avaricious, and the, of, the, of the miserly and the prodigal, from the circle of avarice here, is that, um, you know, if you if you focus on these worldly things, right, if you and remember when I was uh, explaining about the subdivision of the seven deadly sins in uh, medieval tradition, there's one there's there's the three sins of the flesh. There's the three sins of the devil and there's one sin of the world. And that's avarice. Right. This is the one. This is the sin of the world. Uh, and if you if you focus on those things, it's not going to uh, it's 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 going to be bad, right? If you, uh, if you, if you fail in the proper eternal perspective, um, you're not only going to lose heaven, you're also going to lose the earth as well. As he says of these people, like they, they have, uh, uh, they have been robbed of the fair world. Um, both fair worlds, like both the, fa- the, 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 the really, the true fair world, right? The fair world of paradise. Uh, but they've also been robbed of even of their, of their own worlds. They don't, uh, care or, or appreciate them. Um, but um, yeah, Bruce, we did also have this image in our study of Maori. Yeah, Maori has a, uh, does a very famous version. Uh, it's also in other versions of the Arthurian story that he's using as a source. But, um, but yes, the dream of King Arthur with the Wheel of Fortune, when he uh, has a dream of himself on the Wheel of Fortune and being dashed down the other side and smashed down into the ground. He has that dream the night before the Battle of Salisbury Plain uh, when uh, uh, Mordred is scheduled to kill him. So, um, or, you know, <clears throat> almost kill him or whatever. Uh, but anyway, when he's about to die or when he's about to lose and when he's about to lose everything that he, that he has. Um, so anyway, um, so he draws this very broad, which is a very salutary kind of, uh, uh, kind of conclusion. But notice one thing that already comes from this as well. Notice that the coming to blows is a crucial part of their punishment, right? Um, as a consequence for the undiscerning life that made them filthy, right? Um, now for all eternity, they'll come to blows. And remember what they're doing, they're, how they're rebuking each other, right? Neither one of them. In life, there's nobody who looks down on a miser more than a prodigal person or who looks down on a prodigal person more than a miser, 
right? Um, they're not only opposites of each other in one sense, um, though, of course, I, they end up in the same place because, all the, again, although their errors are in opposite directions, they're opposite directions on exactly the same spectrum, right? They still have the same problem, um, as Dante says. But they are opposites in that way and opposed to each other, um, despising each other. And they're still carrying on... Um, uh, they're still carrying on um, the... Um, uh, the 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 conflict, right? They're still carrying on the conflict. They're still despising each other. They're still looking down at each other. There's there's a kind of self righteousness, right? Why do you hoard? Why do you squander? Um, and there's a, a a sort of an obliviousness to it, right? They're both in the same position. They're literally mirror images of each other, pushing their rocks and smashing up against each other, yelling at each other, and then pushing their rocks back the other way, smashing into each other and yelling at each other, right? Um, uh, they they do kind of deserve each other, Carita. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's funny, Jocelyn. You appeared on the Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> that's really cool on the game show I like, didn't actually ride one I mean of course I guess uh, Lady, Lady Philosophy would say we all are uh, but well, that's really funny <laughs> that's really funny and there was no philosophy discussed yeah that's that's less surprising I suppose um, um, yes yeah, so Stephen I agree that's again the pattern that I'm seeing too that once again God is turning them over to their own desires, but removing the good blessings that come with it. They have lost the fair world, even in the sense of just the the world, right? They don't have the riches that they either spent or hoarded, right? Um, and yet they still have the attitudes, right? The bad attitudes uh, that came with it. And the result of it is conflict. The result of it is this continual... Um, uh, they're 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 set to a to a fracas, right? And this is where I, I think one of the things that I'm going to be leading up to here the boundary. Um, sometimes the boundaries between circles in hell are very sharp, and I mean that in one of two senses. Sometimes they're geographically very sharp, like a cliff, right? You know that they've got to climb down or something like that. Uh, so sometimes it's a very sharp boundary, uh, geographical boundary that the Dante Pilgrim and Virgil have to cross through. Sometimes there's a very sharp narrative uh, shift between the two, as between the circle of lust and the circle of gluttony, right? Where he swoons at the end of Canto V, and then he wakes up at the beginning of Canto VI, and there they are in the mud and the rain, and it's clearly he's, it's, we're in a different circle now, right? Um, so sometimes we get those kind of very clear demarcations. There's no question about when you stopped being, you know, when we as readers in our readerly experience stopped being in the circle of lust and moved into the circle of gluttony. Here, uh, sometimes that's not so. And here is one of the places where I find that boundary most uncertain, right? We have on the one hand what seems like a very clear boundary, right? Which is the... Um, uh, the the wall right the the wall and the gate that they're trying to get through in the in the city uh, of the damned uh, in the city of dis but um, but on this side of it like what after this they go and they go through that swamp right is that is that the next circle so or or is it not because they're kind of following the same river and it comes a it's a little bit less clear to me exactly where the boundary is and that seems to me 
well, let me say this a different way. And it seems to me not shocking, right, that we see there's not a lot, there's not a very sharp division. Again, very sharp division between the point of view, the the sort of explanation and the um, circumstances, right, of the shades who are in the circle of lust versus the ones in the circle of gluttony. Um, the lines, the demarcation between the souls uh, who are rolling stones uh, in the aver- in the circle of the avaricious, and the ones who are in the swamp, um, there, there's anger all over the place. I mean, these souls are angry, um, and I. It seems to me that Dante is suggesting a kind of link here, right? That there's something about the attitude of these souls in conflict, right? The, the fracas that they're, uh, uh, the, you know, the fact that they're spending all eternity coming to blows, that that is the fulfillment of their avaricious perspective, which leads me to suspect that the kind of commentary on the sin of avarice that Dante is giving here um, is that it, in the end, it's just as he's saying more explicitly, and Virgil is, is seeming to say more explicitly here, like miser, prodigal, it doesn't matter, right? Either one of them has, they're just different flavors of the same kind of a disordered attitude uh, towards money and towards worldly possessions. Um, he seems to be further to that, suggesting, as far as I can see, that... Um, that there is an element that the, the 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 border between the sins of the devil, wrath is one of the sins of the devil, uh, and the sins of the world, the sin of the world, I should say, because only one, um, is not is not a very sharp one, right? That there is something in the essence of avarice. There's something in the it's it's about proportion, right? It's about putting your focus in the wrong place. Um, that he seems to me to be suggesting a. Um, uh, uh, a pretty close connection uh, here um, uh, between these two, uh, and I find that uh, I find that really interesting. <sighs> Sarah, uh, what an interesting question. Um, Sarah is wondering if I would say what I think is the primary motivation for Dante: the challenge of the poetry or the social religious commentary. Does one purpose serve the other? No. I don't think so. I mean, does he have a favorite? Um, I mean, is it like picking your favorite child? I, 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 I mean, from the beginning, I think that he is what he is doing. I don't know. Would it be a cop out, Sarah, to say that I think that the thing that he's prioritizing most is doing them all at the same time? That like his um, his primary motivation is to is to um, okay. This is. His prime, it's not like any, so he's juggling a whole bunch of balls, right? And it's not like any one of the balls is necessarily his favorite. It's the act of juggling, I think, that is the primary focus. And that feels like a cop-out, but that is kind of what it, what it seems to me. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Now, Jameson, you're right, and of course I'm moving on to that here in a moment. Uh, more discussion of fortune and more commentary on the on the sin of avarice because they they start having a conversation about fortune, and in the context in this conversation, uh, through Virgil, Dante is going to say 
one of the there are a number of things that Dante says in the Divine Comedy uh, that have a massive imaginative impact on future literature, but this is one of them. Master, I asked of him, now tell me too, this fortune whom you've touched upon just now, what's she, what, what's she who clutches so all the world's goods? And he to me, O oh, unenlightened creatures, how deep the ignorance that hampers you. I want you to digest my word on this. Who made the heavens and who gave them guides was he whose wisdom transcends everything, that every part may shine unto the other. He had the light apportioned equally, similarly, for worldly splendors. He ordained a general minister and guide to shift from time to time those empty goods from nation unto nation, clan to clan, in ways that human reason can't prevent. Just so, one people rules, one languishes, obeying the decision she has given, which, like a serpent in the grass, is hidden. All right, this takes a little bit of unpacking, but this is super important. So let me, uh, that this is, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about this because this is one of the small number of passages in today's discussion that I feel like I understand. So I can't wait to talk about this one. Okay. He's like, what is fortune? I don't get it. I don't get, I don't get what fortune is. And you can take this in one of two ways, right? You can take it literally like you speak of this lady called Fortuna, right? You know, like this, uh, you're, you're using this as a proper noun. Who's she, right? So that, that's one way to understand his question. But of course, another way to understand his question is essentially what gives with this fortune thing, right? I mean, and this, of course, as those of you who have done Boethius with me will remember, um, it's one of the major issues for, for the Boethius character, right? One of the major issues that Boethius is talking about is why does all of this random bad stuff seem to happen in a world that's supposed to be ordered by a good God, right? That's the big, big question of the consolation of philosophy. Boethius gives the best answer to this of anybody ever that I know of. And um, uh, anyway, so there is, I think, at least an undertone, if not explicitly, um, Dante basically asking about that. So, you know, so if, if fortune does that, I mean, remember what... what um, Virgil just said about fortune, um, uh, how brief's the sport of all those goods that are in fortune's care, for which the tribe of men contend and brawl. So, okay, you can emphasize that the tribe of men are all, you know, like the, you know, humans are, are you know, short-sighted, right? That they're, um, uh, they're, they're struggling for gold. They're treating, you know, they're treating wealth as if it's the destination, right? If, if it's as if it's the whole point. Um, but of course, it can never offer rest to anybody. Just look at these dudes, right? And you can see. Um, but it's not just that, right? Okay, sure, okay, that's that's fine. Um, but isn't it unjust, though? Isn't it unjust just for for fortune to be blindfoldedly stirring things around? I mean, isn't that for for there to be at the core of how these things? I mean, okay, sure they're not the most important thing. And if you do think that they're the most important thing, then you're being misled and you're very seriously misunderstanding things. And so having some arbitrariness, apparent arbitrariness involved, right? Being able to lose these things might help you to see that they're in fact not the most important things, right? So I, I can see how good can come from that, but, 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 but still like arbitrariness seems counterindicated in a, in a system which is, organized by a good God. And again, this is where um, uh, where we end up, right, in uh, the consolation of uh, in the consolation of philosophy. Um, 
Uh, Jocelyn, do I presume or know that Dante knew Boethius? Dante definitely knew Boethius. Um, I get, even that, that this, this passage alone is enough to convince me that Dante knows Boethius. Um, no question. Um, uh, there are actual like references to like near quotes that he's making from Boethius in this passage. So by this passage alone, I would conclude that Dante knew Boethius. Um, but like Boethius, the consolation of philosophy, um, it's funny, like whenever you talk about the consolation of philosophy to modern readers, it sounds like you're kind of quoting a super obscure ancient work, right? But if you happen to have read The Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius, then you can see that he... But, like, it's in the Middle Ages, you have to understand. Boethius, The Consolation of Philosophy, was, like, um, the number two on the bestseller list for, you know, among maybe number three... No, no, no. I, two or three on the bestseller list of all time... Um, I mean, everybody read Boethius. It's, you'd have to look. For, I mean, some any educated person in the Middle Ages would almost have to have grown up under a rock to have not read Boethius. Um, it's it's like you can you can't um, uh, you can't swing a cat in, <laughs> in medieval discourse without hitting Boethius. Um, so um, uh, so yeah, I mean that's it's it, it's. I'm not saying that that means you can always just assume that they know Boethius. It's always, you know, uh, uh, you want to be cautious making assumptions. But again, this passage by itself would be enough, uh, as I say, to prove it to me. Um, but um, but so Tomas, the um, uh, the 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 riches. Uh, so he's what meaning of fortune is referred to as in riches or as in luck? Uh, riches, um, definitely riches. Um, and yet, Tomas, it's that element of luck that is is the trouble, right? Uh, both aspects are there. Um, it's f- you're fortunate in the sense that you have for- you have a fortune, right? As we as we would say, um, but you're also fortunate in the sense that you're lucky, right? There's a reason that good fortune means good luck in the modern world, right? That's back to this. Uh, it, it stems from that idea. Um, that fortune shifts things around and and fortune is distributed essentially by chance. Um, so both of them are really closely tied together. Um, but uh, anyway, okay, so... Uh, okay. Again... Virgil, that uh, oh unenlightened creatures, how deep the ignorance that ham- that hampers you. I guess it's a very lady philosophy thing uh, to say. Um, uh, and by the way, um, Sarah, the Sarah who is Sarah Duncan was pointing out that it seems strange that the action of God's minister to be compared to a serpent in the grass. I'm pretty sure that's a quote, actually. If I'm remembering correctly, that is exactly the metaphor uh, that Boethius uses there. It's one of the things that I if I'm remembering correctly, is a, an actual quotation uh, from Boethius. Um, but anyway, um, let me explain the middle part. I want you to digest my word on this. Let me, let, me, let, let me assist with the digestion. Who made the heavens and who gave them guides was he whose wisdom transcends everything. Now, um, we're talking about God, yes, but what action of God are we talking about? Who else are we referring to here? Besides God, he who made the heavens and who gave them guides. What does that mean? Who are the guides? Who are the guides? 
Yes, <clears throat> yes, David, exactly. The angels, the 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 planetary intelligences. Um, those of you who did out of the silent planet with us uh, a little while back, beginning of the year, uh, will remember the the Oyarisu. Yes, exactly. Oyarsa of Melacondra is a planetary intelligence. Um, <clears throat> the concept. I think it was this year, wasn't that like in January? David, I mean, it feels like ages and ages and ages ago, but I think, I think we did that. I think that was in 2020. Um, but boy, it feels like it does, does, it really does feel an incredible, like an incredible amount of time ago. Um, anyway. Okay. So, um, uh, the planetary intelligences are angelic beings. They're part of the angel. They're angels. Like they're, 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 they're not abstractions. This is not a, an allegorical figure. These were understood to be, there were literally people and angelic people, right? There were angels who were assigned to each one of the planets, to each one of the spheres uh, of the cosmos, okay? And their job, well, they had jobs. Uh, we don't know all of their jobs, but their jobs are to steer that sphere, to order things, and through their power to exercise influence on the whole. They're part of the system, right? Um, they are, in fact, the closest things uh Okay, this is. A, let me not. I'm just not even complete that sentence because it's gonna. That's gonna open up a can of worms that I want to open up. Anyway, never mind. The point is, uh, they are, so they're major uh, figures. They are. They are the. They are the ones to whom God essentially delegates many of the operations of the cosmos. Right. So through their power and what they do uh, within the different spheres, uh, they are. Uh, they they bring about many of the things uh, that happen uh, in uh, uh, in in all of the cosmos. Okay. Um, okay. So, um, all right, Jocelyn. All right, fine. I won't tease. I was gonna I was gonna compare the planetary intelligences to the Valar, and then I'm just like, no, no. So so this is me not doing that. I'm not I'm not doing that. Um, it much it's much cleaner to compare them to Oyarsa from out of the silent planet because Oyarsa from out of the silent planet is, I mean is exactly modeled uh, on on uh, on the planetary intelligences. Um, anyway, okay, <clears throat> so who made the heavens, God, and who gave them guides, God? So God makes the heavens and He gives guides to each one of the heavens, right? Because each of the spheres of the cosmos are. Um, the uh, are, are that each one is 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 a heaven, right? So the word uh, this is a, an important thing, right? Paradise is capital H heaven. The word heaven is usually usually means the sky, like that word. It's an astronomy word. Um, when you're talking about the heavens, making the heavens, you're talking you're you're discussing astronomy here. Um, so who made the heavens and gave them guides? So put the planetary intelligence, assigned a planetary intelligence to each of the spheres, was he whose wisdom transcends everything. So that means Virgil is going to address the whole, how can a God who foresees all things and knows all things and is all powerful allow like random stuff to happen, allow randomness, period, right, um, within the world. Okay. Um, great. Let's keep going. That every part may shine unto the other, right? So how the different uh, 
planetary intelligence through through the power of the planetary intelligences, the different spheres all influence each other and bring about the composite whole uh, that uh, makes up the cosmos as we know it. Okay, he had the light apportioned equally, similarly for worldly splendors. He had the light apportioned equally. That is among the heavens, right? <clears throat> so he, he divided up the heavens and he apportioned the light equally and he gave them each a planetary intelligence. Similarly, for worldly splendors, he ordained a general minister and guide to shift from time to time those empty goods from nation unto nation, clan to clan, in ways that human reason can't prevent. Okay. Do you see the thing? This is the thing. This is the thing that Dante says, which changes the way people look at fortune forever. Right? This is Dante sort of taking the final step. He's only taking a baby step past what Boethius says, but he is taking a step past it. And that baby step solidifies the concept of fortune for the rest of the Middle Ages. And that, um, that, that baby step is... Fortuna is the planetary intelligence of the earth. Fortune is not just some abs, you know, is, is, don't think of her as an abstraction, just blindfolded, mixing things up. She's not that, right? She's, it's not arbitrary. Just as all of the other spheres are guided by a planetary intelligence which shine upon shines upon the rest and and is enacts their portion of the divine plan so fortune in the world is the planetary intelligence of earth and enacts god's will in earth um serving as general minister and guide for worldly splendors Shifting those empty goods from nation to nation in ways that human reason can't prevent. Human reason can't stop it, can't anticipate it, but also can't grasp it, can't understand it, right? It looks arbitrary to us because we don't have the information. We aren't fortune. We aren't planetary intelligences. We don't see the whole story, right? So from where we're sitting at ground level... It looks totally arbitrary, but it's not arbitrary. It is an enactment of the divine will. Just so, one people rules, one languishes, obeying the decision she has given. Not No blindfold stirring, right, of the pot. Um, and uh, uh, the... So, now, technically, if you go back, Sarah, um, what is being compared to a serpent in the grass is not fortune herself, but the decision she has given. The decision is hidden, right? And it strikes you like a serpent in the grass. It can, it often does, right? That's one of the things that, you know, you fall off the wheel of fortune, right? Um, it does bring about people's downfalls in a purely material sense, not in a moral sense, right? Whether you suffer a moral downfall as well as a material downfall, that's not up to fortune, right? Um and nor is there any kind of necessity connecting those two things. Um, just as there is no necessity that somebody who dies while at the pinnacle of fortune's wheel is, you know, has made it, has won, right? Just ask these dudes pushing their rocks around this circle, right? 
Um, anyway, yeah. Um, Mother Earth, Carrie. Yeah, exactly. A very, very different concept of Mother Earth. Uh, essentially, that fortune is Mother Earth. Um, and this is like this, this, um, this, that step, like I said, that, 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 that link, this insight is, uh, it's just one of those startling, shocking moments. It's, uh, it's both like so simple, so natural, an articulation of the Boethian principles, which of course, like all the stuff about fortune, blindfold and everything, that's all in book two of A Consolation of Philosophy. Lady Philosophy herself leaves all that behind later on. She's like, yeah, actually, it's not all random. I was just, you know, you weren't ready to hear about what it, what the real story is yet, right? We were still dealing with other things. So we were just running with the whole, yeah, it looks random thing. But then she says, you know, in the beginning of book five, there's no such thing as chance. Um, you know, nothing is arbitrary, in fact. So this is, he's not contradicting Boethius or going beyond Boethius in that sense. Um, it's only like in this one articulation, this one conception, uh, to take this concept of planetary intelligences uh, and to, because Earth didn't have one. Earth didn't have one. Now, of course, uh, the, um, the, the, I think, really, uh, really fun, um, imaginative leap, right, that really is sort of at the core of Out of the Silent Planet, certainly, is that Satan is the planetary intelligence of Earth, right? Um, and I, um, I, really love that too. Um, I think that Lewis's conception there is really, really cool. Um, and it's one of my favorite elements, uh, is sort of framing elements of, uh, of Lewis's space trilogy. Um, but, but, uh, Dante's concept here is, uh, really, really neat. Um, it's really, really neat. Oh my goodness. Jocelyn, that is amazing. <laughs> okay. Jocelyn says, when I was on the Wheel of Fortune in the, on the game show, Vanna White actually fell off the game board, <laughs> which caused a great deal of consternation on set. That image of Vanna White taking a tumble <laughs> during the game of... How apropos! Oh my, it's like, and so does Fortune's Wheel turn around. And those uh, who uh, are great uh, fall. That's really funny. That's I love that. <laughs> I just love that. Boethius would love that. What's more? <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Um, right. And Stephen, of course, yes, exactly. It is um, all this talk about fortune should certainly make us um, think. Right. Um, uh, as Stephen is pointing out, these people, right, the avaricious are moving around like a wheel, right? I mean, they're, they're, but instead of going around in a full circle, they're just going halfway around the circle. They're, they're never able... To, it's like, it's like Stephen, all they're doing is the fall part, right? It's like you only get the bad half of the... You know, you get... Because half of fortune's wheel is when you rise from poverty, right, and are born up to prosperity, right? There's the, there's the rising action, which is lovely and delightful, uh, and that everybody loves that. And then there's the falling action on the other side. It's like they only get that half of the wheel anymore, right? Um, which ends with a crash. Uh, it always ends with a crash. 
as their turns always end with a crash. But uh, they're in hell, uh, in this circle, their turns about the wheel end with a crash every 180 degrees rather than every 360 degrees. Again, they, they, don't, get the, they don't get the fun part uh, of the ride on the Wheel of Fortune. They only get the bad part. Um, that's a really good uh, insight, Steve. I like that. Okay. Well, now we're moving on. Or are we? Sort of, right? Because um, they they turn and they keep going, and it sounds always sounds to me like they're just they're you know they don't like go they don't descend. I don't recall them descending. Like remember when they were descending by where Plutus was? It was a big deal, right? They're climbing down, and there's Plutus yelling at them and stuff. Um, they just kind of walk off, and they come to a swamp. And I, who was intent on watching it, could make out muddied people in that slime, all naked, and their faces furious. These struck each other, not with hands alone, but with their heads and chests and with their feet, and tore each other piecemeal with their teeth. The kindly master told me, Son, now see the souls of those whose, whom anger has defeated. And I should also have you know for certain that underneath the water there are souls who sigh and make this plane of water bubble as your eye looking anywhere can tell. Wedged in the slime, they say, we had been sullen in the sweet air that's gladdened by the sun. We bore the mist of sluggishness in us. Now we are bitter in the blackened mud. This hymn they have to gurgle in their gullets because they cannot speak it in full words. Okay. Um... I'm pretty sure it's not just me who is confused about this circle. That is, who has a problem with, like, boundaries and things. Um, because, again, although in some, in many places uh, in the Divine, you know, in, in Inferno, uh, the boundaries are really insisted upon. You know, Dante really insists on them. Um, he's got a very organizing mind. Um, here, it's not, I mean, the the sometimes you will see this circle called the circle of the sullen and the avaricious. Okay, what does that even mean? Are they the same? Why are they lumped together? Are they lumped together even? Because they're in totally different places, doing different things. Um, uh, how even does that sort of work? And yes, Carolyn, exactly. What exactly sin? What's the sin here? Okay, sullenness. But as Carolyn points out, sluggishness. Isn't that kind of like sloth, right? The, the missing deadly sin? Um, yes, it is. It, you know... Um, we had been sullen in the sweet air that's gladdened by the sun. We bore the mist of sluggishness in us. So the slothful are underneath and the angry are up above it. So we've got avarice, wrath, and sloth. We've got three of the seven deadly sins all going on here. In one place, or is it the same place? Not really sure. Um, but it, it, it really... I, rather than... If I were to just, like, get confused, right, or, like, insist upon an order, right, and be like, okay, you know, we've got, we've got to figure this out. Where exactly does the boundary lie? And what's the thing? I want to, I, I feel anyway that I need to resist an impulse to compartmentalization like that. Because, I mean, although that's a very Dantean impulse in a lot of ways, not here, right? I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't do that. I mean, how do we subdivide the furious which where the where the emphasis is clearly on 
wrath, right? The people are naked and their faces are furious, right? Um, these are the souls of who, those are the so, souls of those whom anger defeated, says Virgil. So clearly, we're talking about wrath here, right? <clears throat> and yet those who are under the surface, um, bubbling up, and I love how, you know, just as in a swamp, bubbles will be rising to the surface, right? Bubbles of gases from decomposing matter, right? Will you know, so you get swamp gas rising to the surface uh, in, uh, in swamps. So there are bubbles rising to the surface, but right, like the, 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 the bubbling fetid air that, that, that rises to the surface in the swamp called sticks um, is the confession of those who lie down beneath. Right? Those who bore the mist of sluggishness in them and now are bitter in the blackened mud. So wrath, bitterness, sullenness, plus avarice. Right, All kind of thrown together there. And I, it, seem, it feels to me, anyway, uh, my own... Uh, again, my first impulse is to, to try to uh, force compartmentalization on this, right? Being like, all right, let's figure it out. But I, you know, my kind of later conclusion there is to back up and say, okay, hang on. We're not given that here, right? Since the text isn't insisting on these kinds of demarcations, since it's certainly with the, with those that are under the water and those that are only wading in the water, um, I mean, there's very little boundary between them. Um, even if you could say perhaps there's a boundary of some sort, because at least the the rock rollers are on you know solid ground rather than swamp. Um, so you could say, well, that, that must be a different zone, right? They're 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 separated by terrain, kind at least, if not uh, by you know shelf geography. Um, but I, again, I think to me the emphasis on anger. Right, the fracas and the 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 um, uh, the angry words and condemning words and stuff. Just like you know, we saw them the 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 fracas that they're involved in. Right, the eternal fracas that they're involved in. We see an, an eternal fracas here among the those whom anger has has defeated. Right, so I, I, everywhere I look, I see the boundaries kind of breaking down, and so this suggests to me that we should be backing up and looking at the pattern of the whole rather than trying to differentiate these. Um, if we're being set a challenge here, I think that the challenge is not to compartmentalize these more effectively than the text gives us, but rather to find the overall larger pack. What is the sin of this? Like, it seemed like it was avarice. We had Plutus at the beginning, and then we've got the, the miserly and the prodigal, and that seems, that seems fairly clear. Um, but... Um, uh, but yeah, it's it's really not. I, I I think, and again, it's and it doesn't fit in the seven deadlies because we've got th- apparently three of the seven deadlies appearing here. Uh, and what's even more confusing, it's one of each, right? A sin of the flesh, which is sloth; a sin of the devil, which is wrath; and a sin of and the sin of the world, which is avarice. So, um, it's like a category-defying circle. Um, uh, and in many ways, I think it's the le- it's it's always the hardest to label. Whenever you f- see schematics, lots of people from the Middle Ages onward have made schematics 
of uh, of Inferno, of the different circles of hell. And this one is, I'm always interested to look at the label uh, for this circle because, you know, uh, it's just really not clear. Um, uh, yeah. Um, Yeah, Carolyn says maybe the sullen or the angry too, but passive aggressive. Yes, I mean Carolyn, I, I, if any of the th- of the three sins which are at least hinted at, right? Sloth is the most. Uh, it's only suggested by that the sluggishness moment, right, Carolyn, as you were pointing out. Um, so it's not a very prominent <clears throat> figure uh, of this. Um, uh, avarice is very explicit. And anger is very explicit. But of the three, anger seems to be the... If, <clears throat> if there's one that really binds everybody together, it's anger, right? <laughs> but here's the trick. Or not the trick. We're going to get to a circle, which is going to be next. I think it's next, right? Uh, lust is two, gluttony is three, and this is... Am I missing one? This is... Four? That's not next. Never mind. Anyway, the wrathful. We're going to get to the wrathful. Um, uh, so uh, it's interesting. It's interesting. Like This isn't the circle of the wrathful because we're going to get the circle of the wrathful later on. Um, but um, sort of. Yeah, anyway, it's, it's tricky. Um, Rachel says, is there an element of discontent here? Yes. Um, yeah. And I think, Rachel, I think that your impulse is exactly the right kind of thing here. Rather than trying to... It seems almost the kind of conglomerations of things that we see here seems to me almost designed to defy standardized standard categories. Right. I mean, like like the way in which we get one sin of the flesh, one sin of the devil, and 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 the sin of the world. Um, it's like we can't even break it down. Not only can we not attribute it to one of the seven deadly sins, as we could do for the earlier ones, right? Um, but um, uh, but we um, we it's not even like thematic, right? Um, it's a it's a, it's this it's this crazy kind of hodgepodge, and. I think so, Rachel. When I say I think that you're kind of going in the right direction, what I would um, what I would suggest. Oh, Stephen, of course you're right. I was, yeah, no, no, I was right. I was right. This is four. This is four. Uh, the circle of the muddy. Yeah, I think it's a good way to think about it. Um, anyway, but Rachel, sorry. The point that I was making um, is that you, your impulse to say not like what category can we force it into, but rather, what are some of the themes that we see. I think in some ways this circle kind of tells us more about sin generally than about a particular sin in a way. Um, by lumping, because the two categories are really clear. The avaricious, very clear. The wrathful, very clear, right? Those whom anger has defeated. Um, those are that's like their what their sins were, what their what their prevailing sin was is very ex- explicit and clear. The sullen, a little bit less so. Anger, 
it seems a species of anger, but also sloth seems to be involved. Um, so they, well, muddy things up a bit. Um, but nevertheless, like we have these two, but they're separate categories and they're different categories and they don't seem to be the same. Um, so again, it seems to be that what I feel uh, is exactly along those lines, the kind of, um, uh, the kind of um, invitation, the kind of invitation to think about what all of these sins have in common, right? Um, and uh, and how they're all working together. Even the even the ways, the kinds of patterns that we've been seeing, the the connection between sin and punishment, um, even that itself, the different punishments that we're seeing here, um, I, again seems to me to suggest here we're not supposed to be thinking about just a particular sin and its nature, like we were with lust and like we were with gluttony um, to an extent. Um, but um, uh, but that instead we are invited, as I say, to think about kind of um, uh, sin more broadly. Because I agree with you, Cecilia, I think there is an element of envy as well. And by the way, spoiler, we're never going to find a circle of the envious. Envy is one of the seven deadlies. It's a big deal. Um, we're not going to find a circle of envy in Inferno. Um but is there is there an element of envy? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Especially in the anger and those who are angry here um, and the way that they're always attacking one another. That's a very envy kind of thing. Um, <laughs> Stephen is suggesting that uh, in Minos's categorizations, uh, circle number four is just labeled potpourri. Uh, you know, if if uh, if Minos can't really can't really peg your sin, if your confession is too complicated, he just chucks you into circle four. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, interesting. Brian says there seems to be a kind of hierarchy within the circle, maybe, with those who were active in their sin at top. The avaricious took action to change their material allotment. Uh, the wrathful directed their anger outward, and the sullen perhaps were the least active in rejecting uh, the gifts of fortune. Uh, maybe. I mean, I, I, I think I can see that as a trend. Um, I think I can see that as a trend. Um Yeah. <laughs> Serena says maybe the sin here is an impulse to 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 taxonomize. Yeah, maybe. We 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 got to be careful, right? We 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 do have to be careful here. Um Sorry, I was just looking again at the 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 the, the gurgled hymn uh of uh, those under the water. We had been sullen in the sweet air that's gladdened by the sun. We bore the mist of sluggishness in us. Now we are bitter in the blackened mud. Certainly a, another clear illustration of the, the perpetuation of what they did, right? The Almost the literalization of what they did. We were sullen. So when we were out in the sweet air, gladdened by the sun, we were in the world. We were surrounded by light and sweetness and beauty. Um, and yet we were sullen. We bore the mist of sluggishness in us, right? We, uh, um, we projected out from ourselves um, this mist 
of sullenness, right? Of sluggishness. And now they are buried within the blackened mud, right? Now, again, like so many others uh, that we have seen, now they have what they chose, right? They have uh, the sort of the, you know, they chose to surround themselves with gloom and upsetness, right? Uh, when they were uh, in the sweet air that's gladdened by the sun. And now they have what they chose. Um, yeah, Jennifer says the punishment of the angry is almost too obvious. Nothing to unpack here. Yeah, like that uh, they are constantly fighting, right? That like they having a, having failed to control their passions like the Wastful. Um, it's just a different passion, right? Um, uh, they are, their passion is let loose continuously. I agree, but it seems really simple, right, Jennifer? But then we get, then it gets a little bit more complicated. Let's keep going. So he's describing the terrain. I say continuing that long before we two had reached the foot of that, so they see a tower rise up. And this is, of course, the very beginning of Canto 8. So at the end, the end of Canto 7 is like, and then there was a tall tower. And now at the beginning of Canto 8, I say continuing that long before we two had reached the foot of that tower. Isn't, I think that's the line that, Bo, that Boccaccio took as, a, um, as evidence that Dante interrupted the writing of the uh, Decameron here, or not the Decameron, that's Boccaccio's, uh, of, of, the, of the comedy here, uh, and resumed at this point. Um, um, that he take that as a literal, like, okay, as I was saying, um, which uh, many other people question. But anyway, okay. I say continuing that long before we two had reached the foot of that tall tower, our eyes had risen upward toward, the, toward its summit because of two small flames that flickered there while still another flame returned their signal, so far off it was scarcely visible. And I turned toward the sea of all good sense, that is Virgil, I said, what does this mean? And what reply comes from that other fire? Who kindled it? And he to me, above the filthy waters you can already see what waits for us, if it's not hid by vapors from the marsh. Okay. Let's do, um, let's do a couple... Let's do a couple layers here. On the literal level, this is a tower in a wall. There's a wall here uh, with a tower, and he's there's lights up in the tower. Yep, the beacons are lit, Jennifer, exactly so. Um, and uh, And he's wondering whom they're signaling to. Because there seems to be an answering signal in a remote tower that they can't see, right? They can they can see another flame returning their signal so far off it was scarcely visible, and he's like, "What's going on here?" Right? So that's literally what's being described. Now, what else? How else do we understand this? Yeah, two if by sea, exactly, Stephen. That's it. Yeah, because they're they're in fact going to come in a boat, so that's. Uh, it's a, it's a, actually a reference, I think, to Paul Revere. Yeah, I'm, I'm joking. It's not, but, um, uh, but was Paul Revere a reference to the Inferno? I doubt it. But yeah. Um. Anyway, but it's exactly that kind of thing, right? Um, it's exactly the same kind of thing. 
What does this sound like? Two small flames? Why are there why are there two small flames? Will another flame return their signal? From a distance, what would it look like? Yes. Yes, it would look a little bit like Gondor calling for aid, though not all that much, uh, as the beacons were solitary and significantly larger. <laughs> but, um, yeah, Jameson, that's what I'm thinking. Or eyes. Or eyes. Um, comparing a tower to a human body has been done before and will be done again, allegorically. Um, the most elaborate way in which that's going to be done that I know of uh, is in uh, book two of Spencer's Fairy Queen uh, when he does the allegory of the human body of which I am a particular fan um, but anyway um, I love it when he starts describing the floor plan of the upper floors uh, which is his treatment of human psychology which is awesome, love it uh, but anyway um, uh, so yeah, it does kind of sound like eyes. Um, on the moral level... Okay, well, let's just... They come across this tower, right? Which is like a tall figure towering above them with the two burning eyes. And the two burning eyes are signaling to something. That, and, and it's... Uh, two eyes of flame, right? And we've just had all these angry people uh, apparently signaling and being returned from somewhere very far away in the direction that they're headed, which is uh, down in towards the plane of uh, the lower circles and everything. So uh, the signaling down to those other sins down below. Um, yeah. 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 Good. Serena says uh, Charles Williams does this with Camelot and his lover's body and heroes and kings. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh, it's uh, it's definitely it's definitely a thing. Um, yeah. Um. <laughs> I had forgotten that connection, Carolyn. Carolyn is pointing out that Longfellow wrote both The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere and the most famous English translation of Dante. So, <clears throat> okay, maybe, maybe the maybe the, uh, uh, the Swamp Tower uh, in the Inferno uh, Paul Revere link is not an accident after all. Oh, man. Um, that's an excellent point, Carolyn. That's an excellent point. Um Though it still would suggest the <laughs> the influence goes in the one direction and not the other. Um, uh, yeah, Carolyn, there is a paper in that. That would be interesting. That would be interesting. I'm not sure I'd go with it. but um, Now, why am I interested in thinking about this tower as being connected in some way to a human, for, to a standing human form or a giant monstrous human form? Or even a giant sort of, I mean, it's this black tower with glowing red eyes uh, with this sort of demonic form. Um, on the one hand, this is the first sign of they're going to be facing their most serious 
setback, their most serious opposition during their whole uh, uh, hellish journey here uh, very soon. Um, so that this specter looks like um, an enemy, right, standing and staring at them, rising out of the mist to loom above them and stare in their direction, um, <clears throat> seems apropos of what comes next. Um, so it seems like a kind of embodiment of the uh, of the 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 demonic opposition, um, the demonic anger that's facing them. But again, where we're located, right? This is um, uh, this is in we're surrounded by angry people here, um, and so it makes me think. We have seen before that the demons in these particular circles themselves seem to be tied to the sins that they're they're, they're not just um, they're not just prison guards. They're prisoners as well, higher profile prisoners, um, but they're they're prisoners as well. Um, so that they're going to be opposed, maybe angrily, uh, within among the angry, they're, they're going to receive their greatest uh, setback, their greatest opposition here seems apropos and and uh, and this sort of tying it back to to the human uh wrath here um and yeah exactly david that's why i think of it fiery eyes glaring out of a face are, are a common metaphor for anger exactly um so i just it is and especially in the immediate circumstances it seems to me conspicuous um um let's keep going There's a boat, right? A little boat that comes out. Bowstring has not thrust itself, thrust from itself an arrow that ever rushed as swiftly through the air as did the little bark that at that moment I saw as it skimmed toward us on the water. A solitary boatman at its helm. I heard him howl. Now you are caught, foul soul. Oh, Phlegias, Phlegias, such a shout is useless this time, my master said. We're yours no longer than it will take to cross the muddy sluice. And just as one who hears some great deception was done to him and then resents it, so was Phlegias when he had to store his anger. My guide preceded me into the boat. Once he was in, he had me follow him. There seemed to be no wait until I boarded. Um, so, um... Phlegias, again, is a demon figure, yet again, a demon figure who is shares a name, at least, and pr probably an identity <clears throat> with a figure from uh, from classical mythology, not a very prominent figure. And I don't pretend to really get Phlegias very much as to like why he's connected. Why? What's significant about the story of Phlegias? Why? Uh, it, why is he uh, being brought in here? Not really sure, but Devorah, exactly what you can see is that he's also wrathful, right? We see him have to store his own anger, right? This, this guy is, also has anger issues, right? Um, but he's got to take them for a ride in his boat across this swamp. Um, he has no choice about that, as Virgil reminds him. Um, uh, but you can't, you can't have a, now you are caught, foul soul, right? He's trying to, he's trying to catch them. And Virgil says, no, no, no. You can't, you're going to catch us in the sense you're going to put us in your boat, but only briefly. Um, and he feels like he's been robbed. He feels like he's been robbed. Uh, like some great deception was done to him, and then he resents it, right? Think of that in conjunction 
with the other sins around of the avaricious rolling stones, right? Of the wrathful beating each other up constantly. Um, those, one who hears what some great deception was done to him and then resents it. Um, that sense of feeling like you've been done wrong, you've been done out of your rights, right? And you are resentful of that fact. That's interesting. Um, yeah. And Jameson says this comes back to the discontent. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, Cecilia. Oh, fascinating. She says, Cecilia says, what, Dante didn't faint this time? Right, because the last time he was going to get into a boat, he fainted, right? And interesting, interestingly, Cecilia, when he gets into the boat, the the boat sinks down, right? Because it's not used to hauling the physical bodies of living folk, right? When Virgil gets on board, the boat doesn't sink down at all because he's got no weight. He's a shade. Uh, but Dante weighs down the boat because it's a reminder that he's the living person here with a physical body. And the interesting thing, Cecilia, is that Aeneas did the same thing. In the Aeneid, when Aeneas goes to the underworld in Book 6, in, Virgil, in Virgil's poem, he has that same experience, but he has it the first time. With, with, uh, with, with Charon the ferryman, he gets in the boat and the boat weighs down and Charon's like, whoa, you're going to sink my boat. Um, so um, instead, he, Dante doesn't have that experience because he passes out, right? He faints and never, we don't see what happened. I mean, presumably he did weigh down the boat, but we didn't hear about it. Instead, that I'm going to weigh down the boat displacement is displaced to this moment later on, which um, uh, uh, Aeneas is, um, uh, doesn't, doesn't hit this swamp uh, when he uh, when he's doing his trip. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Arthur Harrow is recalling the lyrics of uh, uh, the "Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat" so song from Guys and Dolls, um, which I would not be surprised, Arthur, if it if they were not in if that was not influenced. Uh, I, I could believe that that was influenced possibly even uh, by uh, by this passage, actually, about, um, you know, with a soul so heavy, you'll never float. Sit down, you're rocking the boat. Yeah. Dante steals from Broadway. Yeah, I'm sure that's what happened, Arthur. It was exactly like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. Tarlonio is just remembering the same song. Exactly. Um, yeah. Now, Mudmore, that's a really great point um, how is the place so physical when they're when all they deal with are shades and spirits that's one of the interesting things about this moment when the boat sinks down um, it's really easy to forget that Dante is the like everybody else are in, is, is, is an immaterial shade around here right he's the only one who's got a body in the whole joint um, and but it because you're right the emphasis is on the physical the physical all over the place right one of the ways in which you could generally characterize what's going on in hell right uh, again thinking about that link between sin and punishment is that in hell the sort of the spiritual things are being rendered physical right um or at least sort of outward except but more as you except not physical because it's all spiritual in fact right they're all spirits they're all shade they none of them have bodies presumably therefore none of them have rocks or boats or hailstones or whatever right um because they're not actually 
physically real. And yet, Munmore, as you point out, the, the place is really physical, right? All of the descriptions focus on as if it were, as, as if they were actually physical things. Uh, in other words, Mudmore, one way to think about it, um, hell itself is a kind of allegory, right? Just as in an allegory, um, abstract ideas are made concrete and tangible and visible, right? That's the point of allegory. That's the function of allegory. Hell itself is a kind of spiritual allegory, right? Where these abstract spiritual concepts are being rendered outward, visible, tangible in some sense, but not literally physical, right? Not literally tangible um, because nobody has a body in the entire place. And this is a moment where we're kind of reminded of that, right? Oh, yeah. Um, Dante, um, Dante has mass, right? He said nobody else has mass. And yeah, that's, that's why the, that's why the, the boat is so fast. Um, yeah. So Jocelyn, exactly. They can hurt. Um, so like getting your back rent by Cerberus or whatever being, you know, quad, you're still in pain, right? You still experience pain. It's not that it's not real. Um, it is real, but it isn't physical because they don't have bodies, right? So again, it is the, it is the, and that's another sense in which, remember when I was talking about the gates of hell and I, I was, I was saying, um, like, for what purpose was all of this stuff done? Like, the, the, there is a sense in which the whole organization of hell is done almost for Dante's personal benefit because he's the one who's receiving the guided tour, right? So that he could bring uh, that the message back. Jocelyn, there's almost a way in which everything that happens is kind of like that, right? Um, they don't... How it looks, what appears to be happening, doesn't matter. Because there is a sense in which, from a physical standpoint, none of it's real, right? None of it's, or at least, again, none of it's physical. Um, these are spirits being spiritually tormented. And yet, the, out, the, the, the making outward of these things, right? The, the, the articulation and description of all of these things in this ve these very outward, very physical terms... It's almost like that link, that rendering. These shades could be tormented in these appropriate ways in, a, like, complete darkness, right? That is, with nobody seeing anything, without any kind of link to tangible phenomena, tangible, like, either, either visually, audibly, uh, because nobody's got eyes, or audibly because nobody's got ears, or tangibly because nobody's got nerves, right? Um, it's uh, it could be done without any of that. You could just have you a tour of hell could simply could be the same in essence the same, the same spiritual stuff going on all over the place, and it could just be looking like one empty room or moving through complete blackness. Right. Not perceiving anything that's going on. And the, so the same thing could happen and look like that, but it doesn't. Right. Um, and it's almost as if hell itself has been articulated as a kind of allegory, um, which Dante in his allegory is depicting. Um, yeah. Um, so, yes, Stephen, I, I believe that that does mean that Jameson was thinking the same thing. Uh, and Brian, I think as well, and Jennifer. 
<laughs> that yes, it does mean that the, the misers and the prodigals are rolling spiritual boulders. That's exactly what's happening here. Um, exactly, Jameson. It's allegory all the way down. That's it. That's it. It's allegory all the way down. Um, exactly right. Um, yep. Yep. Um, but now back to uh, Cecilia. Your question about Dante fainting. Now, we remember he's fainted twice. He fainted uh, before they entered into the first circle, like when they, uh, you know, in the anti-hell, right, where the uncommitted uh, were being tormented. And then he fainted again in the second circle with a lustful, right, right after hearing from Paola and Francesca. And then... Um, so we, and, but he's you know not fainted in in, in some time, uh, so he seems due, um, and he here he is getting into a boat without uh, without keeling over. So that seems like a good, uh, um, that that seems like a good uh, uh, a good moment. And Brian, again, I agree with you. So much of the narrative is taken up with the need to physically travel around the space. It is absolutely right. I mean, it's it is rendered <clears throat> rigidly. And it's, there are no exceptions, right? It is a, it is as a physical landscape that he is traveling through this. Um, uh, Dante is committed to the allegorical concept, and apparently so was God when he designed hell, right? So there we are. Um, anyway, okay. He doesn't faint. He gets in the boat and he doesn't faint. But watch what happens instead. I always find this the most mind-blowing passage in Inferno in its own way. And while we steered across the stagnant channel, before me stood a sinner thick with mud, saying, Who are you? Come before your time! And I to him, I've come, but I don't stay. But who are you who have become so ugly? He answered, You can see, I'm one who weeps. Which sounds like an appeal to pity, doesn't it? Pity me, I'm weeping. And I to him, in weeping and in grieving, a cursed spirit, may you long remain, though you're disguised by filth. I know your name. Okay. Okay. So, um, right. Um, in weeping and in grieving, a cursed spirit, may you long remain. So not so much with the pity, then. Okay. Okay. Um, when he said to Chaco up in the circle of gluttony that, like, although, you know, many punishments are worse, none's more disgusting, that was a bit of a diss, but there was a certain edge of pity to it, right? And he seemed to have pity for those and certain to have, seemed to have a lot of pity for uh, the lustful. Um, uh, Brian says, uh, oh, come before your time. He can know when Dante's appointed time is supposed to be. Oh, yeah, well, that's obvious because he's still alive, right? Still alive. It's not your time yet, right? I can I can tell you're not supposed to be in hell on account of you. you haven't died yet. So it doesn't say he knows when his time is. It's just obviously still in the future because he's still alive. That's what he's talking about. Um, exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> he's not dead. That's exactly it. He's going to go for a walk. Um, yeah. So, Dollar Struck, I agree. From right here, right away, I'm, 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 I'm uneasy, right? I'm getting awful uncomfortable already. 
the lack of pity, I'm like, okay, because, you know, look, pitying the damned, that can go a couple different ways, right? I mean, it's not necessarily a bad sign when he's shown pity before. That, I think, was probably okay, but... Um, but yeah, Dolly, I agree. Like the the he seems kind of upset, right? He seems a little angry at this guy, which is uncomfortable, conspicuous, right? Um, Divorce says he's been pitying everyone, pitying everyone so far. I, I don't get why this is different. Well, he knows this dude. He knows this dude. I know who you are. And he's delighted to see him down here, apparently. May you long remain down here, accursed spirit. He's going to curse him himself. Okay. Well, what I have to say is at least, um, yeah, I mean, there seems to be, there seems to be beef here with this guy. Dante seems to have beef with this guy. Okay. So, uh, like beefing with a guy, uh, in, the circle of wrath while he, while you're in the circle of, of anger doesn't seem like a good move to me. Right. makes me nervous. I kind of can't help but feel like maybe you're doing it wrong when you do that. Right. So let's, um, if only we had, um, uh, wait, um, what is it? The, um, uh, sorry. Uh, what was it again? Oh yeah. The sea of all good sense. If only we had the sea of all good sense, uh, nearby to help us out of this, you know, cause it sounds like Dante might need a bit of a rebuke here. Right. I mean, that's what I'm thinking. That's what I'm always thinking when I read this. I'm like, okay, lay into him, Virgil. Like you let, let him know that he's, uh, if he's going to be angry with the folks in the, ang- like, cause what are they doing? They're fighting, right? The angry souls. They're all, they've, they've been conquered by anger and, and they're all beating each other up. And so what he sees this guy and he's like, yeah, you, you want a piece? And I'm like, okay, you know, maybe I get that danger, danger. Okay. So Virgil, what do you think about this? Then he stretched both his hands out toward the boat, right? So the guy's coming for him, right? At which my master quickly shoved him back saying, be off there with the other dogs. Okay, so not so much with the pity from Virgil either. That done, he threw his arms around my neck and kissed my face and said, indignant soul, blessed is she who bore you in her womb. And I can't even tell you how many different species of uncomfortable I am right now. When in the world he was presumptuous, there is no good to gild his memory. And so his shade down here is hot with fury. How many up above now count themselves great kings who will wallow here like pigs in slime, leaving behind foul memories of their crimes? Um. Um. Okay, so first of all, just to make, I know some of you get it, but I know many of you won't. Um, the extra, the, so like Virgil warmly uh, praising him for this thing, which seems to me manifestly wrong. Like I can't, I can't help it. Right. It just, it seems like a really, really bad idea. Um, I was totally expecting Virgil to smack him down. Right. And say, look, like, do you, you want to jump out of the boat? You want to, you, you want to live here? Right. Is that your story, Dante? If not shape up, right. Like that's what I was totally expecting that. Right. Totally expecting that. And instead we get Virgil, Virgil showing violence, right? Virgil kicks the guy back into the swamp. It's Virgil who fights him, 
And, you know, he shoves him. But still, right? He shoves him back, insults him, and then hugs Dante. And it's like, oh, dear. But on top of that, there's another dimension of discomfort, um, uh, which a lot of you will probably get. Anybody get the scripture reference there? <laughs> Blessed is she who bore you in your in her womb, for real. So in Luke chapter eleven, somebody in the crowd says that to Jesus. Okay, Jesus has just been doing miracles again, and somebody says, "Blessed is uh, uh, the womb that bore you, and the paps which gave you suck." Um, uh, and uh, uh, now that. The same thing that was said to Jesus, or a similar thing that was said to Jesus, should be said to Dante, should not surprise us. We've seen Dante, the parallel, like, you know, the Dante Pilgrim character as a type of Christ has been a thing from the beginning, right? Um, that's not the thing that makes me uncomfortable. I mean, okay, okay I'm not going to pretend that doesn't make me a little bit uncomfortable every time it happens, but nevertheless, like, I can get over it. Um, you know, once I get into the allegorical mode and realize that, like, you know, that Dante is the Dante, the character, the person on a totally different allegorical level, then he is Dante, then he is like a representative of the type of Christ. Um, you know, I, I, you know, to, to say like, so is Dante saying he is Jesus is to kind of cross the allegorical streams in a, uh, you know, a hermeneutically inappropriate way. So, okay, I can get over that. Um, uh, so that I can I can convince myself that it, this is not just Dante continuously throughout his poems saying you know who is like Jesus me, uh, but but again mild levels of of background discomfort with that all the way through on my part I confess however um, as I say I come to grips with that like I'm okay I'm I'm okay I've worked through that that issue again allegorical levels I'm cool but now here in this moment. Seriously? When he's being wrathful among the wrathful? When he's showing a complete the complete lack of pity for this person and being commended when I expected him to get rebuked? That's when he's like Jesus? Um hmm. Sorry, you know what I'm laughing at? I'm laughing at the fact almost nobody has made any comments about this. I don't blame you. I don't I don't know what to do with it either. I really don't. Now, I agree. Okay, good. A couple of comments have come in, uh, and several people are thinking of the righteous indignation of Jesus, especially when he's casting out the money changers, right? When Jesus makes a whip of many thongs and uh, uh, and uh, beats up the money changers and kicks over the tables and chases them out of the temple. Yes, that is a famous moment of, in, of righteous indignation and wrath on Jesus's part. He's not just a gentle dude all the time. Yes. Um... Agreed. That is a thing that happens. Is it much like this? Much? <laughs> I, you know, uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, 
Because uh, this doesn't seem to me like a Jesus in the temple thing. It, it, it doesn't. Different in, in, in lots of in lots of ways. Um, okay, Virgil, when in the world this dude, whose name, as we will learn in a moment, even though Dante recognized it, he's not said it yet, is uh, f- is Filippo Argenti. Filippo Argenti was presumptuous. Yeah, so in the world, he was presumptuous. There is no good to gild his memory. He was called Filippo Argenti, that is, uh, uh, Philip the Silver, um, be, or the Silvered, uh, because he uh, went around, he, he uh, painted his horse's hooves with silver. Like, he, he was extravagantly uh, rich and um, did a lot of flossing in the streets of Florence, apparently. Um, so the gilding his memory is kind of a stab at that, right? Like, ah, so you um, um, you were all for the gilding, right, uh, when you were alive. Now there is no good uh, to gild your memory. That's, uh, that's the story. At least that's the only story I know about this guy. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, Rachel, this the, your question is exactly what I always find myself confronting in this passage. And it's hard because it's almost like it breaks a rule or something, right? Like, I thought I had it worked out, right? I thought our pattern was clear here, that Virgil was the guide, right? Dante, that Dante is that Dante's going to screw up sometimes. We've established that from the very beginning, right? The Dante Pilgrim is no... Um, fit um, moral guide, right? I mean, like, don't model yourself after him. That he's going to be messing up, that often his reactions are going to be the wrong ones. Okay, we've established that. And Virgil has been correcting him, right? Virgil has been the sea of wisdom, right? Like, or, I'm sorry, I've already forgotten the phrase already. The, uh, no, sorry, I want to get it again. What was it again? The, the um, sea of all good sense. That's it, the sea of all good sense. So there he is, the sea of all good sense. And um, uh, he, um, uh, okay. But now, so now, but he's wrong now? Because I don't think we've had a, a moment. Like, he seems to know all the things, right? I mean, not that he's omniscient exactly, but he's an informed guide. Um, his words seem to have been completely trustworthy up until this point. But it isn't just that he says something sketchy here, right? I mean, he's over the top sketchy, as far as I can tell, um, that Dante does and says some of what seems to me the most objectionable kinds of things that he's done in the whole time, right? Um, I mean, I I would t- if if you would ask me if you'd like put them all next to each other, right? Like the moment of cowardice he had in the circle of the cowardice, the moment of sympathy that he had with Paolo and Francesca, that you know all of these things, right? You put up all the moments in which you know the, the the hesitancy that he had before he set off in the first place, right? You put all these places where um, the Dante Pilgrim gets corrected by Virgil, right? Put them all next to each other. I would have picked this out as the worst. I would have been like, clearly, if there was one place where he needed the biggest smackdown, it was here, right? And you've got Virgil, the sea of all good sense, throwing his arms around his neck and 
and and kissing him and saying, "Ah, blessed is she who bore you in her womb." Right? I mean, you're 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 just you know you remind me of right now Jesus. That's who. Seriously, um, it Rachel, I cannot help, I cannot help, um, but think that Virgil is wrong here. That we're supposed to be that this is. And it's one of the first times that we get kind of like, whoa, all right. I guess Virgil doesn't know. It. I mean, because one of the two, either this is supposed to be okay and I'm wrong. You know, my reaction is wrong. Um, but because he doubles down. And I, oh, master, I am very eager to see that spirit soused within this broth before we've made our way across the lake. And he to me. Before the other shore comes into view, you shall be satisfied. To gratify so fine a wish is right. Come on. You can't, I can't buy that. I won't. I absolutely refuse. Right? No one will ever convince me that I'm supposed to be behind Virgil when Virgil says, to gratify so fine a wish is right. No. There's no way. Soon after I heard these words, I saw the muddy sinners so dismember him that even now I praise and thank God for it. Come on. Come on. They all were shouting, At Filippo Argenti! At this, the Florentine, gone wild with spleen, began to turn his teeth against himself. Um, now, as one of you was reminding me, Dolores Stroke, there it is, um, from the notes, um, uh, uh, personal beef. Filippo Argenti was one of his political opponents in Florence. Um, and the, 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 the word on the street is uh, actually impounded a lot of Dante's own personal possessions. That fact makes many people reading this passage are satisfied to kind of laugh at Dante here, right? To take this as an instance of Dante losing control as a poet, right? This is just one of those moments where Dante let his personal feelings overwhelm him, right? Dante, like, he really hated this dude, and he just couldn't wait, right? So Dante indulged in the pleasure of relegating one of his personal enemies to a particular, uh, a particularly horrible, you know, punishment in hell. Um, uh, many people say that kind of thing. When they do, I don't usually fight them. I disagree. Entirely disagree. In fact, this place is one of the last possible examples I would point to of that. Right? If there are... If he were going to do that, right? He is drawing so much attention to this here. I mean, he has gone miles out of his way. I feel like he's gone miles out to make me feel uncomfortable reading this, right? If all he wanted to do was smile quietly to himself while he depicts Filippo Argenti uh, in a, a you know exp experiencing a hideous and humiliating uh, eternal punishment in hell, um, 
there are lots of ways he could, he could just throw him in. He could he just but to put him down with the wrathful who are all attacking each other and who are next door neighbors to the avaricious who are the miserly and the prodigal who are have a completely um, inappropriate view of worldly riches and who are always yelling at each other about it, right? To choose those that place to put the guy that he himself bears anger against because of what he how he did him down in life and how he just would like to get to him and see him suffer for all eternity because he's so ticked off about what he did to him. And why? Because you took all my stuff, right? I had all this stuff. I had all this wealth and you took it for yourself and now I don't have it anymore. To do all this in this circle, like that's not a coincidence. It can't be a coincidence, right? I mean, that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous to think. Uh... It's ridiculous to think that that's a coup. I, I I find that an absolutely impossible leap to make, right? That I, nobody, I think nobody, could be so unselfconscious as to not see the uh, the screaming irony there. The uh, the irony screams way too loudly. I can't I can't do it, right? And I would feel that way even if we didn't get this first time ever behavior from Virgil. Right. If it didn't also coincide, coincide, Rachel, with what you were saying the very first time that we're like, oh, slow your roll here, Virgil. Right. I think, oh, 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 contraire. Right. Uh, sea of all good sense. I, 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 uh, I, I beg to differ with you. Right. Um, if Virgil responded to this by rolling his eyes or something. Right. Um, if Virgil responded to this just with some kind of cryptic platitude and they moved on I still would not be convinced I still could not believe that Dante could be so unselfconscious as to as to um like I I damn himself so resoundingly as he does here but with that added in so that this whole encounter uh just is extraordinary, extraordinarily um, uh, uncomfortable, right? I um, I can't. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't. And then, yes, exactly, Jocelyn. Then you have to add in the, the very... Dante does not really seem prone to this kind of lapse, right? This is a guy who is, you know, as Jocelyn pointed out, writing in Terza Rima with four layers of allegory, you know, multiple layers of allegory all at the same time. Yeah, he, he's, this is not someone who's like jotting down these lines in a furious passion, right? It's, that's, it's not happening. It is not happening here. So, what do we do with this? I don't know. I don't know. Um... Here's, I can't help but feel, since I cannot avoid being pushed in this direction by this passage, I can't, I, I, I don't believe, I don't, don't believe that we're supposed to just be on board with Virgil here, right? I don't, I don't. I think we're supposed to be, dis, we're supposed to be uncomfortable. Um, by the way, even the scriptural quotation itself makes me uncomfortable on another level because it's it's not just a um uh hey you remind me of jesus thing which in this moment is sufficiently uncomfortable right but does anybody remember the next verse what does jesus say 
When the person in the crowd in Luke chapter 11 says, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the paps that gave you suck. What does he say? Anybody remember? This is a deep Bible quiz. Jesus' response is, Nay, rather, blessed is he who hears the word of God and does it. Um, Jesus rebukes that person, corrects that person. Um, right. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, like, again, like it's off. It's off in every way, in every dimension. It's off. It's just, it's, I feel like there is signal after signal that we are, we are supposed to resist this, right? So I do resist it. So what is the consequence of resisting it? Well, two things. One, we see once again Dante implicated, heavily implicated in the local sin, just as he was implicated in the sin of lust, and he was implicated uh, in this in the sin of the lustful and in the sin of the cowardly and uncommitted, right? So we see him implicated, heavily implicated, in the sin of the wrathful and avaricious, slash, avaricious slash. Lawful, right? Uh, in the sin of the potpourri, Stephen, right? Um, uh, yes, heavily. But he seems unaware of it. That is, the Dante Pilgrim doesn't learn from this, isn't corrected from it, right? It's almost like having seen that a couple times. Now, like, we have to do the work, right? We, we don't get the commentary from Virgil. Virgil doesn't do it. Instead, we are being forced up to yet another level. We have to see through Virgil. We've never done that. Virgil's always been our guide, too. And I can't help the conclusion. It seems to me an almost inescapable, um, an almost inescapable conclusion that, um, that we see beyond Virgil here and that we respond to Virgil saying, he, 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 he doesn't get it. Virgil doesn't understand this. Virgil's not saved. Right? Virgil, Virgil's in hell, too. He's just in limbo. Right? He's not down here being soused in the broth. Uh, but, um, um, but we have reasons to think. You know, see if all good sense or not. Um, he doesn't know everything. And he doesn't understand everything. And I can't help but think that He's missing the point here. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, Stephen says, Virgil can understand sin and being punished for it, but he can't understand forgiveness of sin. Exactly. Pity, forgiveness, um, those, you know, Christian things, the things that Virgil didn't have, Right he seems to be showing an ignorance of them here. Um, I think that instead of just being, you know, unselfconscious and, and uh, taking a, a kind of an innocent and unself-examining delight in uh, doing down his personal enemies uh, here, Dante is kind of pushing the reader to a new kind of interpretive level in a sense, right? Not on a new level in the sense that we're now interpreting it in a whole new way, but um, this might be too overdramatic a way to say it, but it's almost like 
our own interpretive, like moral interpretive training wheels come off in this scene, if you see what I mean, right? We, we, we can't rely on Virgil. Um, we have to see, not only do we have to see past Dante, which we could kind of do from Canto 1 on, right? That was, not, that was never hard. Um, he's a bit of a doofus. Uh, but, uh, the Dante Pilgrim, I mean. Um, but, uh, but now we see past Virgil, Virgil, who is, who is no doofus um, and hasn't been all along. Um, yeah. I, I, that's the only way that this passage has ever made sense to me. And uh, to me, it has... Uh, well, I'll be interested to think through a little bit more, as I never... Th I'm not sure I've ever really kind of fully followed this through in the text. This is why I love doing these discussions with you guys. I always learn so much. Um, I'll be interested to see what are the consequences of this. That is, as we move forward from here, where do we go in our own spiritual journeys? Right, which is one of the sort of allegorical layers of this poem, after all. Where do we go in that from here? Um, well, bang up against the gates of dis, which won't open before us. Um, which, um, well, the gates of hell, which um, do avail against Virgil, briefly. Sorry, making crypto Bible references again. But I will explain them next week, when we return. Um... <laughs> oh boy so what should you read for next week I think I'm going to say again what I said this week we are totally getting through Canto 9 next week there's not even a question about that but I, I'm sorry Filippo Argente has always bothered me and I feel like our discussion that I, has brought me to a better understanding of this passage than I've ever had before so thank you guys for helping me with that that's been awesome and very helpful uh, so we'll um, uh, uh, yeah, Jocelyn has a crypto Bible reference about the gates of hell. I'll explain it next time. We'll we'll we'll, we'll do the Bible reference next time uh, to the gates of hell. Um, uh, so anyway, thanks very much, everybody. Good night, everyone. I will see you guys next week. Bye now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.